Please turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 8. As you turn there, I, I trust you had a wonderful New Year's yesterday and are anticipating a, a wonderful year this year. Encourage you to begin the new year aright. Uh, this evening at uh, Camp Good News, we'll be having our uh, monthly evening service. We'll be meeting at Camp Good News. There's some activities for the children. They'll be working on the spring musical, and if your children haven't participated in that before, they're still welcome to come and begin uh, singing some songs together. Just encourage you to, to do that. Uh, we, the rest of us will be talking about uh, Christian reality, kind of uniting our, our secular and, 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 and the sacred and just some, some neat things to kind of think through as we think about a, a Christian worldview, how to view reality around us and, and engage in the world as a believer. Some, some neat things to think about as we start our, our new year together in 2011. We're looking at Luke chapter 8, we're returning to Luke chapter 8. Remember three weeks ago we looked at Luke chapter 8 verses 22 through 25 as we see, saw Jesus calming the storm and this morning we're looking at Luke 8, 26 through 39. If you'd please stand with me as we read God's word together. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible, Luke chapter 8 beginning in verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on the land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demons into the desert. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. And so he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. You may be seated. May we be encouraged through God's word this morning. Let's pray. And indeed, Father, the, the prayer of our heart this morning is that you would speak. Uh, speak, O Lord, and, and may your name indeed be glorified throughout the entire earth. We recognize that we only have hope of understanding you, of receiving information about you through the special revelation of your word as your spirit works through that. And so 
speak to us as we study it, cause our hearts to be attentive and our hearts to change as a result of listening to your word. We pray this in your son Jesus' name, amen. There are many questions that believers have as they think about the demonic realm and about demons. What sort of power do demons have? How do they exercise this power? How much danger specifically are are believers in from demons? How do demons operate in the lives of believers? And just as importantly, how can believers have any hope of overcoming the power that demons have? A few years ago, 2003, August of 2003, there were two pastors in Michigan. And these pastors in Michigan heard about a a young girl who had tried to to cast a spell in their hometown. And so they became very concerned about the possible demonic activity in their city. And so what they decided to do was they they found a Harry Potter book. And they they hadn't read the Harry Potter book, but they had heard that this girl perhaps had, had read it. And they saw the cover and they thought, well, perhaps there's some demonic danger that's represented by this book. And so they announced that they were going to burn this Harry Potter book in front of their church. So the day came to, to burn the book, and they got the fire going, and they, they threw the, the book in the fire, and there were about 50 spectators, and these people had also brought some things to burn that they believed represented some demonic danger. So someone else threw in a copy of the Book of Mormon. Another person threw in a, a book a translation of the Bible that wasn't the King James Version. Uh, another person threw in a copy of the, the Dan Aykroyd movie, Coneheads, and, uh, which I support, actually. Uh, and, and that was their, their way of, of perhaps uh, trying to, to fight the demonic realm. I believe, however, that that was completely ineffective in really engaging and fighting the spiritual realm that represents a danger to believers. On the plus side, at least these pastors recognize that the demonic realm does present a danger and is real, but I don't believe that burning books is the most effective way of combating that spiritual realm. Now, again, in these pastors' defense, Acts 19 describes some people who had been involved in the occult, and as a a sign of repentance, showing that they were through with that world, they they did burn some books. But I don't believe that, that burning books is the biblical way to combat the occultic realm, especially when it's not clear that there's a direct correlation between the book and the demonic realm. But what danger does the demonic realm present? What powers does it possess? And what hope do we have of overcoming that power that it represents? What we're going to see here in Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through 39, is that demons are real and have a terrible power but that we have hope of overcoming that power through our triumphant Christ. And so we're going to look at two things. First of all, we're going to look at the terrible power of demons in verses 26 through 30, and then we're going to look at the triumphant power of Christ in verses 31 through 39. Let's begin by looking at the terrible power of demons in verses 26 through 30. Here's what happens in the story. Now, just again, as a reminder of the context, We've just looked at the story three weeks ago of Jesus crossing the Sea of Galilee. And three weeks ago, I told you that we're going to look at a series of three units over the next uh, three weeks. This first unit was Jesus crossing the Sea of Galilee. 
We're going to look at the second unit this morning. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the third unit of stories. And each of these units displays Jesus' power over a certain realm. Three weeks ago, it was his power over the physical realm. This week, it's his power over the spiritual realm. Here's what happens in this story. Jesus has just finished crossing the lake, and he comes to this region on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the Gerasenes. And as he enters this region, we're not exactly sure where he's at, but as he enters this region, he's greeted by two men who are demon-possessed. Luke is only mentioning one, but Matthew, who is actually there with Jesus, tells us about two men who come to Jesus in this country. Both of them are demon-possessed. Mark and Luke only focus on this one individual who's demon-possessed and becomes a witness for Jesus in this region. That's why Mark and Luke focus on this, this second man, and that's the man that we're going to focus on this morning as well. So Jesus uh, gets off the boat. This uh, man approaches Jesus, and here's what the text tells us about this man. It says in verse 27 that this man had demons. And for a long time, Luke tells us, he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. This guy is living a bizarre lifestyle. He walks around without any clothes on. He lives a, a life among the dead in these tombs. Mark tells us that as he lived among the tombs, he would cry out night and day, and he would, he would harm himself, and he'd have all these bruises. This person is under such control from the spiritual realm of demons that he is isolated. He lives a bizarre lifestyle. Even though he is physically alive, he is spiritually dead, and that spiritual deadness is heightened by the fact that he lives in this dark place of death among the tombs. That's this man and the result of this demonic influence. Then Luke tells us in verses 28 and through 29 what happens next. It says that this man, when he saw Jesus, uh, he cried out and he falls down before Jesus and he asks Jesus, uh, what have you to do with me? In other words, uh, why are you bothering me? Uh, get, get away from me. And then he calls him the son of the most high God. And this is a, an expression that the spiritual world often uses to describe God. For example, in Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel refers to God as the Most High God. In Luke chapter 4, Satan refers to Jesus as the Son of the Most High God. Acts chapter 16, a demon-possessed young girl refers to God as the Most High God. The demon is rightly recognizing that God's power is exalted over the entire spiritual realm. And this man falls down at Jesus' feet and says, What have you to do with me, Son of the Most High God? Why are you bothering me? Don't torment me. Then we see what had preceded that. Verse 29 tells us what had happened right before the man fell down at Jesus' feet. It says that Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. And why had Jesus commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man? Well, Luke kind of goes back in time a little bit more. It says, for many a time, the spirit had seized him, and this man was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would be, break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. This man has been living a life characterized by destruction, isolation, darkness, and bizarre behavior. 
the demonic realm has so influenced his thinking that he's not able to process the world around him rationally. The demonic realm also apparently gives him some tremendous physical strength at times as well. And this physical strength is manifested in these breaking of these chains, and then his twisted, bizarre mind drives him into further isolation. He lives among the dead, and he cries out night and day, and he's harming himself. He's living a terrible life. And as he lives that terrible life, he encounters Jesus. Jesus, as he sees him, commands the demon to come out of him, and this, these demons that are within him cause him to fall down before Jesus and not say, please help me, Jesus, I'm living this terrible life, it's, it's miserable, I have great misery because of this life and this demonic involvement. Instead, bizarrely, this man who is being tormented falls down at Jesus' feet, is able, even through this demonic activity, to recognize the authority of Jesus, but says, leave me alone. It's very hard to know exactly how cognizant the man is of what's going on, what's the demon talking, and what's this man able to comprehend in this conversation. But the demonic involvement in his life is so profound that his mind is clouded and he lives this bizarre, dark lifestyle. He is physically alive but spiritually dead, living among the spiritually, the physically dead. And then Jesus asks him, the spirit, what is your name? Spirit, spirits reply, legion, because there are so many in, involved in this demonic possession, this demonic influence. Let's stop the story there for just a moment and kind of see what we're up against. Here's a man who has been so influenced by these demonic forces that the other people in his life are completely unable to help him. He lives this destructive lifestyle. He chooses to live this destructive lifestyle. And at the same time, the, the, the demonic forces are, are helping him think along that way, pursue this destructive lifestyle. And the people in his community have been completely unable to help him. And I think the tension in the story is this. These powerful demons have influenced this man to such a degree that those around him can't help him, will Jesus be able to help him? These demons have terrible powers, and they're exercising their terrible powers to the destruction of this man. Will Jesus be able to help this man where so many have failed? I'll give you a hint, the answer is going to be yes. But that's the tension in the story at this point. What I want to do is give you, as we look first of all at the terrible power of demons, I want to give you some, some principles about demonic activity that may help us as we think about demons and their abilities and what they do. The first principle that I think you need to understand, the first truth about the demonic realm that you need to understand, is that demons exist and have terrible powers. That's number one. Demons exist and have terrible powers. Demons are not some uh, psychological manifestation, uh, de demonic... Uh, the demonic activity isn't simply metaphor for something else in Scripture. Demons are real and have power and abilities. Demons here are spirit beings we see in this text and others. That is, they don't have a physical body. They are spirit beings. They have intelligence, intellect, the ability to comprehend the world around them. At the same time, these demons have limitations. Demons are not omnipotent. They're not all-powerful. 
They're not omniscient. They don't know all things. They're not omnipresent. That is, they don't exist in a bunch of different places at once. They're, they're localized in certain areas or regions or uh, individuals. So demons are real and have possessed terrible powers. That's number one. Secondly, it's important to understand this. The objective of demons, the objective of demons, what they're trying to do is to oppose the manifestation of the glory of God through delusion and deception and destruction. The objective of demons, what they're trying to do is oppose the manifestation of the glory of God through deception, delusion, and destruction. Demons are going to do everything in their power to oppose God's glory being manifested. And they're going to oppose God's glory being manifested through very specific means. They're going to try to deceive, they're going to try to delude people, and they're going to try to destroy things to the best of their ability. Demons' goal in their being and their essence is to oppose the manifestation of God's glory. And demons do this in conjunction, in, in the human life, demons do this in conjunction with the flesh. I, I don't want to minimize the depravity of humankind. We are depraved and we would do wickedness with or without the demonic realm. And yet the demonic realm adds to humanity's ability to pursue and be deluded by sin. We see here that the demonic realm in this man's life has been incredibly powerful in leading to his destruction in the state that he finds himself in in the story. The help of the enemy in destroying this man's life is fearsome. Now, let me say something that may be a little bit shocking to you. The danger that you face from demons is less at 11.59 in a graveyard on Halloween than it is Sunday morning in a church. Do you believe that? The demonic realm presents more of a danger to you on Sunday morning in a church, in most churches perhaps, than it does in some dark, scary graveyard at 11.59 on Halloween. Why do I say that? Let me give you some scripture to back that up. Turn to, in fact, turn to 1 John chapter 4. We're in the Gospel of Luke. Turn right in your Bible toward the end, 1 John. 1 John chapter 4. As you turn there, let me read you 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. In 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, Paul says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. The demonic realm is engaged in deceptive teaching. That's one of the ways that demons work to bring about their objective of causing God's glory not to be manifest to its fullest is through teaching and deception. Now let's look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. John writes this, Believers do not believe every spirit. That is, there's going to be some spirits that are lying to you, some spirits that tell the truth. How do you distinguish? 
test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming, and now is in the world already. Verse 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. There are two spiritual forces at work in the world, and one is going to exalt God and proclaim his name and proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. The other spiritual force in the world is not going to do that. The other spiritual force in the world is going to try to deceive and trick people and delude them into wrong thinking about reality. That's the the, the demonic realm. That's their objective, is to delude people concerning the character of God And they do this primarily, we see here, by denying that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That is, by denying doctrine about Jesus Christ. I was talking to a person recently who was telling me about a a church in town. They said this this church in town invited a a Muslim cleric to come and teach a Sunday school class. And this uh, church had this Muslim cleric come and, and teach the Sunday school class and, and teach them that the God that Muslims worship and the God that, that Christians worship are the same God. One minor difference, how they view Jesus Christ. Minor difference. That is the essence of the Christian faith. That is our understanding about who God is. Jesus Christ is the image of God, the representation of God, and uh, God himself And the demonic teaching of the world proclaims something different from that. It's a delusional, demonic teaching. That's how demons operate through deception. Revelation 16, John is writing again, and he says, I saw coming out of the mouth, listen to that, the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits. These demonic spirits go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God, the Almighty. These demonic spirits work at deceiving people through the proclamation of this teaching. They go and they assemble all these kings to oppose God. That's why I say, based on what Scripture tells us about how demons operate through deception, you are in more danger sometimes Sunday morning at a church than you would be hanging out in some graveyard at 11.59 at night on Halloween. Because of the way that demons operate, it is through deception and deluding people about the character of God and the way that life is to be lived. You're in more danger, probably. Let me say, you're in more danger oftentimes watching a a 30-minute sitcom that proclaims anti-biblical values about the the world around you than you are watching some slasher horror flick that that you kind of know is a little off. I'm not recommending either. But you see what I'm saying? The demonic realm works to 
confuse and deceive our thinking about reality. And the more immersed someone becomes in demonic thinking, the further they get away from reality as it truly is, and the more deluded they become, and the more destructive their life becomes, and the more they fail to manifest the glory of God. How do you explain evil in the world like the Holocaust? Again, I'm not minimizing, I'm not minimizing the, uh, the sinfulness of the human heart. I'm not minimizing humanity's depravity. But surely as we look at the Holocaust, we see the demonic realm working in conjunction with human depravity to twist and distort thinking about the world and about reality. I'll come back to that in a moment. How can you explain the horror of abortion in our country apart from the demonic activity in our country? It's warped, twisted thinking about reality that has led to the whore of abortion in our own country. How do you explain, how do you explain, apart from the demonic realm, the tendency in our culture to call that which is evil good? How do you explain the pursuit of immorality in our culture apart from the demonic realm working in conjunction with human depravity to distort and twist our thinking about what is right and what is wrong? How can you explain a culture that pursues materialism to the, to the point that our culture does at the, exclusion, at the exclusion of considering the spiritual reality around us apart from the delusion of the demonic realm? How do you explain a culture that pursues materialism while turning a blind eye to the suffering of the rest of the world apart from demonic activity working in conjunction with human depravity. We are a deluded people, and the demonic realm works in conjunction with our, our depravity in order to further delude and deceive our thinking about what is real and what exists around us. I mentioned uh, the Holocaust a moment ago. You know, you can go to the shops at Grand Prairie in West Peoria, and there's that Holocaust memorial, six million buttons on display, each one representing the life of a, a Jewish person that was killed during the Holocaust. How did the Holocaust begin? The Holocaust didn't begin with, with Hitler calling the German people to exterminate the Jews. He didn't just announce, okay, I, I'd like to do this. Uh, I think we're going to kill all the Jewish people. What, who's with me? been reading a biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I mentioned it a few weeks ago. I received it for Christmas. An amazing, amazing story of this man's life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer recognized that the problem with Hitler and Hitler's regime was theological. And he recognized it long before most people did. He recognized that uh, liberal Christianity had taken such a, a, a root in Germany that it represented a, a danger to the authority of Scripture. And so he opposed liberal Christianity, recognizing that it was attacking the sufficiency of Scripture. And he called people in the German church, the German Christian church, to make a stand, a doctrinal stand. Do we believe Scripture or do we not believe Scripture? 
do we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, or do we not believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And the German Christian church, many of them in the German Christian church, were unwilling to make such a stand. They were unwilling to, to see the deceptive teaching that was coming from the pulpits across Germany. And many German pastors welcomed Hitler with open arms because they had been deceived long ago by demonic teaching. One pastor would later say this. His name was Niemöller. You've probably heard this quote before. Uh, Bonhoeffer calls Niemöller to account. He says, look, you don't understand what you're embracing. This is a theological issue. You don't understand what he's teaching about God, and these German Christians are teaching about God. Niemöller said, no, you're, you're being ridiculous. Niemöller was deceived, I believe, by this demonic teaching. He was deceived by this German nationalistic teaching, embraced it, and later Niemöller would say this after spending eight years in a concentration camp. Niemöller would say this. He said, first they came for the, social, the communists. And I didn't say anything because I was not a communist. He said, then they came for the trade unionists. And I didn't say anything because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews. And, and I didn't say anything because I was not a Jew. He says, and then they came for me. And there was no one left to say anything for me. It was a delusional, demonic teaching that swept across Germany. It was theological in nature, and even many Christians were deceived because they had long ago abandoned the sufficiency of God's word. Demonic powers, their objective is to oppose the manifestation of the glory of God through deceit and destruction. That's number two as we think about the terrible power of demons. Number three, uh, number three there are various types and degrees of demonic activity in the world. There are various types and degrees of demonic activity in the world. Uh, we see in Scripture sometimes that the demons cause illnesses. Luke 13, 11 says that there's a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. 2 Corinthians 12, uh, Paul talks about a, a, a messenger from Satan sent to oppress him. We also know that there are degrees of demonic activity in the world. Uh, 1 Timothy, uh, Paul talks about people who have been held captive by Satan to do his will. Matthew 12, 45, Jesus talks about uh, seven spirits returning the place of one spirit, causing a, a greater harm than this first spirit uh, caused. We also know that sometimes people are, are so uh, influenced by demonic thinking that they're said to be possessed. There's this abnormal influence. What, what I think Scripture is telling us is this. Our minds are very fragile things. Our minds are very fragile things, and because of our fallen nature, our susceptible to deception. And the more we immerse ourselves in wrong thinking, the, the teaching of demons, wrong thinking about life around us, wrong thinking about uh, how life is to be lived, the more we oppose the manifestation of the glory of God, the more we live our lives contrary to how God has told us to live. This man who's encountered here has become so separated from reality that he can't even process what's going on around him. He's obsessed with, with darkness and, and death. First three principles, demons exist and demons have terrible power. The objective of demons is to, uh, is to oppose the manifestation of the glory of God through deceit and deception. And then thirdly, there are, there are various degrees and types of demonic activity in this world. What's the, what's the point of all this? Well, the point is this. Demons and their 
influence represents a real danger to all people. Christians have sometimes, in conversations with me, said this. It's, you know, uh, do you think that demons may someday try to influence me? It, it sounds kind of scary. You think demons could possess me? I said, well, I don't think belie- de- believers can be possessed by demons, but I've got some bad news for you. You probably already are influenced by demonic thinking. <laughs> you probably already are influenced by the thinking of this world, the thinking of our culture that is held Uh, to some degree, in Satan's grasp. Believers already are being influenced by demonic thinking, and our goal as believers is to test the Spirit, to understand what God's Word says, and to oppose that thinking that runs contrary to what God's Word instructs us. Therefore, as believers, you and I should be very careful about what we allow our minds to think about what we allow the minds of our friends and fellow believers to think upon. We should be very careful about the influences we allow in our children's lives. And the danger to our children often isn't going to come across in some, some book about sorcery or some sort of you know, a Lord of the Rings thing about some wizards or whatever. The, the danger to our children is often going to be presented in that 30-minute cartoon after school. Because it's presenting a worldview that is contrary to the worldview of Scripture. And our responsibility as parents, our responsibility in our own lives, is to take every thought captive to Christ. And as we see entertainment, as we read stories, to think about them from a biblical worldview and interact with our children, interact with ourselves in the light of Scripture and saying, what does, what does this mean? What does God's Word say about the reality of the world around us? That's the danger to us as believers. That's the terrible power of demons. They oppose the manifestation of the glory of God. They do do it through deceit, and they do it through destruction, delusion. And this man has succumbed completely to the terrible, deluding, deceptive force of the demonic realm. Well, that's the terrible power of demons. Uh, Now let's look at the triumphant power of Christ. Look at verse 31. Remember what's happened here, the, the, the demons have, have uh, caused this man to, to fall down before Jesus. He says, please, please don't torment me. And uh, what does Jesus say? Jesus asks him, uh, what, what's your name? They say, Legion, we're many. Jesus already commanded the demons to come out. The demons haven't come out. And so we're left with this question. There's a lot of these guys. They haven't obeyed Jesus. Is Jesus more powerful than these demons? Is he more powerful than these other people who have tried to help this man? And I've told you already, the answer is yes. Listen to what the demons say next. Verse 31. They begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Even though these demons are powerful, even though, though they've been able to wreak destruction and havoc in these man, this man's life, even demons tremble at the authority of Jesus Christ. What's this abyss that he's talking about? Well, if you look in your Bible in Jude, Jude, Jude only has one chapter, but Jude chapter 1, Jude chapter 1, Jude tells us something about the nature of the demonic world. We know that demons are fallen angels, and in Jude, we read that some demons are already being held captive by God. Verse 6 of Jude says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Sometimes we have this 
cartoon vision of hell and Satan in the demonic realm in our, our minds. We think this. We think, okay, there's, there's hell, and God, there's heaven, and God's in charge of heaven, and Satan's in charge of hell. In fact, this last week, I heard a very solid Bible teacher talking about how Satan likes to, to get believers and can't wait for them to die so that he can have control over them. That's not what happens. There's heaven that God is completely in, in control of, and hell is not Satan's realm. You know what hell is? Hell is Satan's judgment. Hell is what Satan fears. And the demonic realm fears hell. We see in Jude here, we also see this in 2 Peter, that even today, some of the demonic realm has been confined to, to chains, to uh, a place of, of uh, layway until, until the uh, eternal destruction that they'll face that we see in Revelation chapter 20. Even de- the demonic forces tremble at God's name. Hell is reserved for their judgment. And so the demons, as they stand before Jesus, beg him, don't begin our torment now. We want a little more time, and Jesus gives them permission to enter these pigs. The demons leave the man, they enter the pigs, and this herd uh, that's under this demonic possession rushes up down the steep bank into the lake, and they're drowned. You say, well, why do they do that? What's the point of drowning 2,000 pigs? They're demons. What they crave is destruction and pointlessness. It's opposed to the manifestation of the glory of God. They're going to do it, and they do it. The herdsmen who are in charge of these pigs see what happened. They're out of there. This is getting too crazy for us. They flee. They go into the, into the city and they tell people what's happened. The people from the city, some of them probably own these, these pigs. They're concerned about what's happened. They come, and what is the scene that they see when they arrive back to where Jesus and this man are? Luke tells us this. It says, verse 35, The people go out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus, and they found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus. And in contrast to the earlier picture of this naked guy running around crazy and deluded, he's clothed. He's been restored to seeing reality. He's in his right mind. Jesus' authority over the demonic realm has been complete. And they were afraid. What in the world happened here? And these people that see this restored man begin to ask around, what happened? What do you mean you lost 2,000 pigs and now this crazy guy is wearing clothes? They say, here's what happened. See that guy over there? He started saying something to this guy. He told the spirit to come out. The spirit fell down and called him some of the most high God. And then he said, "Uh, what's your name, Legion? And then they started asking about these pigs. Can we go to these pigs? He said yes. And, and they obeyed him and they left and they drowned all these pigs. And the people in the city, when they saw the power that Jesus had over the spiritual realm, rejoiced and said, please stay and teach us about you and God, right? No. That's not how they respond. It says, verse 37, they say, please get out of here. Depart from us. They don't respond with faith. They respond with with fear. This is too weird for us. You just cost us 2,000 pigs. 
is a Gentile region. We're not in the Jewish realm right now. They ask Jesus to leave, and so he leaves. What about the man? What about the man who had had these demons removed from influencing him? We see this in verse 38. It says, the man from whom the demons had gone begged, please let me go with you. And Jesus says this. He says, no, return to your home, and your task is to declare what God has done for you. And so the man goes and returns and declares what Jesus has done for him. What are the principles that we see about the triumphant power of Christ? Number one is this, or four if you're keeping them all in line. The fourth principle of the, from the story that I want us to think about is that only God, only God can deliver a person from the demonic realm. It is only God that can deliver a person from the power and the control of demons. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul tells us this, he says, You are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You are following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom, whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In other words, we were held and captive by the, the prince of the power of the world, this, this demonic realm. We were deluded by it just like everybody else. What happened? Verse 4, but God. God, in his miraculous intervention, delivered us from that control and thinking like the demonic world. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, Paul says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. Only God, only God, only God, only God has the ability to deliver someone from the demonic realm, from thinking about reality as the deluding spirits desire people to think about reality. Only God has that ability. Number four, number, and that's the main point, by the way, of the text. That's what Luke is trying to communicate to us. Number four, and this isn't the main point of the text, but I think it's kind of important to think about. As you think about interacting with the demonic realm and this may be a little bit more controversial, and I, I, say, this, I say this carefully. The, the point is scriptural, but let me, let me go beyond this point. The point is this. Number four, uh, believers are not instructed in scripture to cast out demons. Believers are nowhere instructed in scripture in how to identify demonic activity, in how to identify demonic possession, and how to instruct a demon to leave a person alone. I have nothing in Scripture that, that tells me how to go about removing a demon from a person or identifying how a demon is influencing a person. I, I know that a demonic influence is, is taking place all throughout the world constantly, but I, I have no scriptural guidelines in how to remove that influence in terms of casting out demons. It's not an authority that's been granted, I believe, to the believer. Now, in Scripture, we see the apostles... We see the apostles and Jesus engaging in removing demonic spirits, uh, but we don't see that on the case of uh, people who are not apostles. In 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, I believe chapter 
12. 2 Corinthians 12, 12. Paul talks about this. He says, as uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and, and mighty works. And so clearly, during the apostolic age, there were these abilities that the apostles possessed in order to demonstrate that their authority and their teaching was from God, that authority doesn't seem to have been continued after the apostolic age. In fact, uh, John MacArthur, I was reading a question and answer uh, series that he gave on demonic activities. He said something very interesting. This is Pastor John MacArthur in California. He said, now, I don't want to underplay the demonic realm, and it may well be that demons are involved in some kinds of, of these things. And He says, but the ridiculous part of this is to assume that a guy can just run around telling demons what to do. Then he says this. He says, uh, I've tried to cast out demons from people when I was younger and foolish. Because now I'm old and foolish. But uh, I, I tried to do that, and they wouldn't go anywhere. He says, I remember I, he and another man had this girl, and she had all kinds of demons, and they kept talking and yelling, and we, we tried sending those demons everywhere. We tried sending them to Phoenix, to Tuscan, to Albuquerque. We sent them to the desert. We sent them everywhere, and they simply wouldn't go. We had absolutely no authority over demons. We're not apostles, we can't heal the sick, and we can't tell demons what to do. And I, I believe that he's right there. We do, however, serve a sovereign God. As Luther said, even Satan is God's devil. Even he must face the power and the judgment of God, and only God can tell the demonic realm what to do. In fact, this evening, we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And 2 Corinthians chapter 10 does describe a little bit more how we're to engage in the demonic realm. In verse 3, Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but of divine power to destroy strongholds. Now, how do we engage in the demonic realm? Listen to what he says. This goes back to the mind. He says, We destroy arguments. We destroy every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. If I have a person that comes before me and they're influenced by the demonic realm, they're thinking according to demonic teaching, my job isn't to stand before them and start trying to cast out demons. What do I do? What do I have? I've got the word of God. And my goal is to take every thought captive to the word of Christ and communicate to them the truth of the gospel and allow God to work through the power of the, of the word to destroy the arguments of the demonic realm. That's the power that I have. It's the power of Christ, not my own. So, finally, the last principle here is that believers are instructed to oppose the demonic realm through biblical through biblical resistance. We're going to look at this more when we come into Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 43 that, that talk about this, this boy with an unclean spirit. So we'll return to this idea later. But the main point that I want you to see this morning as we look at this man, as we look at him tormented by demons, completely deluded and deceived in his thinking about the world around him, living among the spiritually uh, being spiritually dead, living around the physically dead, the main thing that I want you to see is this. No one can help him. He cries out to Jesus to leave him alone. 
But Jesus has the authority to command these demons to be gone, and they are gone. And Jesus restores this man completely. When the people come upon this man again, he is in his right mind, he is fully clothed, and he's talking to Jesus. I don't know what foothold the demonic realm has had in your life. I don't know how the demonic realm has worked in conjunction with your own flesh to to delude your thinking, to deceive your thinking, and to cause you to engage in destructive behaviors. Maybe it's it's been as a husband. As a husband, you've been deceived in your thinking about how how to engage in leading your wife and, and your family, and you have said and done some terrible things. Maybe it's you're, you're a child and, and you have done some terrible things to your brother or your sister and you've just said some hateful things to your parents. Uh, maybe you're a young person and you've been engaged in some immorality. You've been thinking some weird things about how you're to relate to people and, and it's, it's led to destruction and deception in your life and it's led to greater misery and you've been deceived and you think there's no way to get out of this mess that I've created for myself. That is further demonic thinking, praise God. This guy is running around naked, living in a graveyard. And God restores him completely to right thinking. That's the power of Christ, the triumphant power of Christ over the terrible power of the demonic realm. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of Christ as revealed in your word, and we pray that you would help us to be submissive to your power as revealed in your word. Give us complete victory through faith in your son, Jesus, and we pray this in his name. Amen.